And welcome to another edition of the Michigan Basketball Insider. Sam Webb here with Tim McCormick, former Michigan standout NBA first-round draft pick, longtime NBA player, and now a broadcaster and commentator on college and pro basketball. Tim, how are you doing today? Really good. And, you know, now that, that there's only one meaningful football game left, we are full-fledged basketball 100% of the time, and – uh, the Big Ten race is really exciting to me. Um, I, I was looking at Joe Lenardi's projections, and he said 12 teams from the Big Ten into the NCAA tournament. I don't believe that. That seems like a, a high number, an inflated number. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is we, we've learned a lot about Michigan. And since that triumphant return from Nassau, uh, Michigan has played eight games versus power conference schools and has lost six of them. Um, and that includes 0-5 on the road. So Michigan has some work to do in the Big Ten. But last time I checked, there's 20 games, and 10 of them are on the road, 10 of them are at home. And for Michigan, you know, they faced a pretty tough road schedule. And so things are going to give them some opportunities with five of their next six at home. Um, I do think that they'll win four of those six, especially if Isaiah is back. And that would get them back to 500 and, you know, a, a more respectable spot. Yeah, such a huge deal. And road wins, we talked about this last week, even tougher to come by seemingly in the Big Ten this year than than normal because the, the parity is so great. You know, so many teams jump together, lump together. you got to protect your home floor. But themes, I know this was a game that Michigan ultimately wound up losing. But, uh, you know, some major talking points for us from the last few weeks, I think manifest in this game – uh, in a somewhat positive way, at least, albeit in a loss, though. And one of those things that we talked the most about, Tim, was would Michigan would Michigan show any willingness to adapt, to adjust, to do something different on the defensive end of the floor? Uh, they did, unfortunately for them. Uh, it, it was only with limited success. And, and one of the things that we also pointed out, though, was that you could not count on the supporting cast for Iowa to be as absent as they were in the game at Chrysler. And that turned out to be the case as, as Joe Camp and C.J. Frederick uh, were much more present, were much bigger factors in this game. Well, they, they were. Um, 13 points for those two in Ann Arbor. 41 at Carver-Hawkeye Arena, including six of eight from three. Look, Mi- Michigan is really competitive. Um, I, I like the way they play. They're, they're, they're a hard-playing team. And and when when you look at Michigan, Iowa, they're really similar in their approach. High scoring, not great on defense, excellent at home, probably 500 in the Big Ten this year and an NCAA trip. Um, and, and so I thought that in that game, Michigan played very hard. They competed well and they relied heavily on the three point shooting. That's why they play in peaks and valleys. I counted four scoring droughts, two in the first half, two in the second. Um, and when their shots are falling, they, they, they get a swagger, they get really good. And when they, they, they struggle to shoot, they slide. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that, I thought that the, the other thing is the, you know, some of the, the post play adjustments that, you know, we had, we had talked about um, the fact that, that, that Michigan was going to have to mix things up. And I feel like they dipped their toe into the water. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they, 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 um, they, they tried some things, um, but not fully and not always successfully. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to not be discouraged by that. Uh, what you're talking about is we saw from the very early point of the game uh, where, where guys were digging down in the post, the uh, perimeter guys were digging down in the post to help on Luca Garza. Uh, but I think what, what we'll see is, you know, there's a difference between, uh, you know, just double teaming and then double teaming. You know, anything, you, doubling with aggression. One of the reasons why Michigan was such a great post-double-down team in the Fab Five era is that they did it with conviction that you you force guys to to have to react to be on their heels to 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 feel like they were on the defensive even though they were on the offensive end you know the 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 doubling that's casual uh, allows guys to still have or feel like they still have options and that's that's more an observation than it is a criticism like you said it was they were dipping their toe in and then they were doing it against the guy that's really good. look let's give Luca Garza a ton of credit uh, he fought through some of those double teams and really uh, still made some hay. But I think what what the the Michigan guys will see is that anything you do, you talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, man, I really liked how hard Michigan was cutting. It kind of highlighting the difference between a cut and a cut. And I think the yeah, same thing uh, goes with, with uh, when it comes to doubling in the post. Yeah, I, I thought that the post scheme, the post double scheme was lukewarm. Um, you know, we're going to show some things and maybe that's enough. But the truth is, Michigan was hurt by post play again. Uh, Kreener and Garza combined for 57. I know some of those were jump shots. Um, and then I do think Michigan showed some progress, but they, they may need to, to bring it more. And, and we beat up Teske, you know, the last couple of weeks. Well, I don't think we were unfair, but I think a lot of people have been critical of his post play. And I thought, for the most part, he did a pretty good job, even though Garza had 33 in one-on-one situations, Teske was more physical. And he had seven boards, and, and his his hands are really good. He had four steals, which is a lot. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those things that that I, I think that, especially on the road, post-play is, is essential. And I thought that, that when Teske got the ball offensively at the other end, I thought he was pretty effective. And, and he just didn't seem to get it enough. And so if you're going to get outscored um, so substantially by your opponent, it's going to be hard to live with jump shots and win games on the road consistently. So, you know, while while I say Teske played well defensively, I thought that he was a little bit underutilized on the offensive end because I think he's a good post player. I think that when you look at it, I mean, so much focus on, on scoring. But John Teske, as a facilitator in the post, he does a great job of finding cutters. Uh, you know, that that to me is maybe the most impressive aspect of, of his passing, I think, as he draws more attention than the post. He will find more guys on the perimeter. But guys making aggressive pass, uh, basket cuts, uh, he seems to have a vision. The, the one with Franz Wagner, that wasn't even a design. That's just great recognition. First from Franz to, to realize, hey, you know, we got an opportunity here off a rebound. Let me let me cut to the rim. And then for John Teske to find him, I thought was an outstanding play. Seven assists on the game for John Teske, to your point. Uh, a more effective post player than I think he's given credit for. Something that Michigan has to utilize more. Uh, maybe that will be do something to mitigate the opposing posts. Uh, and then the other thing that one of the things it might do is maybe, Tim, Maybe just maybe it'll get them to the free throw line a little bit more. Free throws were a massive disparity, and 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 so before before I share my thoughts, 
um, and they may be a little bit different. Did you think that the referees um, were were poor and I, they they cost Michigan the game? I, I wouldn't say that they cost Michigan the game. I, I think they they affected it. Michigan still had opportunities to, and, and I am one that is very critical uh, of officials. So this is not me uh, being one of those people that that says it's wrong to highlight when when officials don't don't call the game squarely. And and I think they're human. They're influenced by. They're influenced by the the you know the arena, the venue. I think that has something to do with it. Uh, and then you know the the perception, the perception that one team is is more aggressive. Look, Iowa routinely shoots more foul shots than the opposition, and I think that 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 routine, that pattern, I think plays into the thought process of the officials heading into the game. Because I thought there was there were definitely some instances where where Michigan should have got gotten more of the benefit of the whistle doubt in this game than they got. But you won't hear me say, uh, look at it and say, look, this is one of those things where Michigan lost because of the refs. But I think they they definitely were impacted by it. Look no further than Xavier Simpson going to the bench early in the first half. And to Michigan's credit, they were still able to play through and over that. Uh, but that was a huge factor for Michigan in this game. Yeah, and, and Jawan Howard would pat you on the back right now and say, Sam, you've got a growth mindset. Nice job. <laughs> uh, so so I, I thought that my biggest problem was with Xavier Simpson getting that, that cheap foul. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a mistake. But so to the disparity, and, and I'll throw out some numbers, Michigan, 23 fouls, which was 10 more than Iowa. And they made – 23 more free throws than Michigan. Luca Garza had six more free throws than Michigan even took. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wieskamp made five more than Michigan as a team. And and but overall, I did not think that Michigan had an unfavorable whistle. I I just I believe it's an easy excuse. And the bigger factor is that Michigan is a finesse team. They rely on threes. And, and so, so how do you get to the line? Well, you post up and you go inside, you're physical, you're confrontational, you're assertive, you bang people around, you use angles, you draw contact. And Garza is the best in the Big Ten at that. And, and he took 13 free throws and he knocked them down. The other thing that you can do to get to the line is you can be a driving team. Right. You can draw contact. And, and Xavier is the best driver. No one else on Michigan's team excels off the dribble. No one. And, and. And, and so when Xavier went out, you lost your leader, but you lost your best driver. So if you don't post and you don't drive, you really can't expect to shoot a ton of free throws. And, and, and the physicality shows in other ways. So we already talked about Iowa took 25 more free throws. That's a big number. But Michigan was out-rebounded by 13. And Michigan had 10 more fouls. And Michigan shot 18 more threes. And so... If, if Michigan fans say that the free throw disparity was was unfair, I, I I don't believe that the refs cost Michigan the game. I just I I was more physical for sure. Yeah, I, again, I, I don't think that they they cost them the game. I'm right there with you. I, I do think that it was a little the imbalance was a little too pronounced, and and that's why I highlighted the the X the X file in particular. I, I just thought that that you you can't give a cheapie like that, but that's just. Uh, that's just my opinion. And again, Michigan played yeah. over. They played over and through that. I give the guys a lot of credit. It felt like that was the the part in the game in the first half where, where Iowa was going to blow the game open. 
Uh, and, you know, Michigan responded. Michigan's Michigan's role players, we'll talk about that, uh, you know, later in the podcast. Michigan's role players really, really stood up and stepped up. But I, I'm curious, Tim, I know you you spoke to to X we in last week's podcast, a great interview with X. And one of the things that we highlighted with him was leadership. Michigan now coming off of a couple of, of, uh, of tough losses on the road, games where you, if you watch them, you feel like, hey, Michigan has a real chance. They had a real chance to win these games only to let them slip. It kind of feels like to me this is one of those times, uh, you know, a point in the season where the leadership, the leadership ability on the team uh, is really, really going to be even more important. And X's leadership in particular is going to be even more important to help this team not let a couple of games, dropping a couple of games in the Big Ten is going to happen to let that couple of games not turn into a swoon. Yeah, Sam. And when when I talked to X, um, his words really resonated with me and took me back in time a little bit. And and I, I remember um, my senior year, we had a chance to beat Northwestern on the road on the last day of the, of the season. It was my birthday. I remember it like it was yesterday. And we lost in overtime. And it was humiliating because that would have been my only chance to play in the NCAA tournament. Um, at the time, I could have come back for, for a, you know, my redshirt year. But um, besides that, I, I was really crushed. And, and I did a lot of thinking about, you know, where the season would go and what my role was as a leader. And I had concerns that we had been pointing towards the NCAA tournament so strong that that my teammates would kind of dismiss the NIT as as, you know, not important. And so I remember that day um, of our first practice getting ready for I think we played Xavier McDaniel and Wichita State in the first round. Um, and, and so for our practice, I got there early and I started running sprints, um, because I, I wanted, when my teammates came on the court, I wanted them to see that, that I felt like this was important. And we had a couple days off and I wanted to make sure I didn't lose my conditioning. And so when my teammates came on, I was in a full sweat and, you know, and I talked to them about how important this was and what a great opportunity it was. And it was a good it was a good leadership lesson for me. I felt like I was kind of emerging in that role a little bit. And, 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 and that's what seniors do. They really want, they, they really want to set a standard. And, and that's the way both Teske and Simpson are for Michigan. And that, that's an excellent segue, Tim. And to another conversation you had with Xavier Simpson about leadership. So before we get to this week's, uh, you know, feature interview, with Jay Billis, which I'm really excited about. Here is Tim McCormick, extended time with Xavier Simpson. So, X, I, I, I'm, I've been so impressed with your leadership and your mental toughness and the guys follow you and respect you. Can you talk a little bit about, as a leader, what do you do when your team's coming off a really hard-fought loss? It's kind of like get back to the drawing board. Um, I watch film a lot, especially after losses. Just watch film, see the things that we could have done, see the things that we still can do to become a better team. Um, I'll go back and watch film, and I'll send it to the guys, not just the mistakes that they've done, just the things like – not more about beating them up because I understand that we're all basketball players. We're going to be upset about losing. No one obviously likes losing. But then again, when we lose, we got to be able to look into the mirror, um, accept, accept the loss, um, challenge ourselves, learn, and get back to the drawing board and get better. 
Um, we got to own it. As Coach Juwan says, we got to own it. So one thing I do is watch film. I watch it by myself. Then I come up here, um, do some recovery work, um, watch film after that, send some clips to the guys and things that they um, could have done. Not more like um, you pass it to him and it was a turnover, more just things like when they double and make yourself available so the guys getting double teamed can see you, just things of that matter. And um, yeah, one thing I one thing I got to improve for myself is getting better when when we lose because I'm not when we lose games I highly dislike it. I got to get better with myself and also with my teammates. Um, obviously, everyone like doesn't like losing, but um, that's something I got to improve on. Whenever we lose, I kind of just go into a shell. I'm real angry. I hold it like all the anger and the pain, all the emotion inside, which is not good. I got to learn how to put it beside me and move forward, uh, which I became better at. But then again, it's always room for improvement. So um, anytime we lose games, I just go back to the film, watch it, see the things that we could have done, see the things that we still can do for the next game because um, one loss won't detect our whole season. Coach Martelli talked about using sugar. Can you explain that? Using sugar. Yeah, where you, you've got to sometimes give guys sugar. Yeah, what does that mean? Sometimes he, he's – well, towards the beginning of the season, um, not even in the season, actually preseason, we were working on practice and we were going through a – Kind of rough time, not a rough time, but we we'll say we were going through a time where we were competing a lot in practice. Um, and I was hard on guys. Coach Martelli pulled me aside and said, "We love the way that you hard on guys, blah 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 blah, this and that." But um, the message was that he needed to put sugar. Sometimes I need to kind of just comfort guys, like express the good things that they do, like dramatically. So that's something I learned um, over the course, and I feel like it works. So sometimes a guy might do something, might be simple. He might make it just extra pass or took a charge. And I'll make sure that I'm his biggest cheerleader. I'll exaggerate the fact, like, oh, he just took a charge, like, on purpose just to give him comfort. Like, hey, like, what you did, we recognize that. Like, we need that. Like, what you did is good. That doesn't go, that doesn't go unnoticed. Because guys need that sometimes. Guys can miss shots. Um, they may get defense to stop and may think about the shot. Like, hey, like, you missed a shot, keep your head up. But you just got a defense stop, which is more important. Like, don't forget, like, it's not about just scoring or being on a highlight film. Like, it's the small things that make you a great player as well. Sometimes guys need to know that, especially with the team I got now because John and I are pretty much the only two veterans with Isaiah getting a lot a lot more minutes this year. We're depending on sophomores, and we have two freshmen coming in. So it's been kind of rough for them, but then again, that's just where John and myself come in and be leaders and comfort them and let them know that the good things they do and the things that they can prove on as well. Basketball skills include shooting and dribbling and passing, but – uh, bounce back ability and having a short memory are also basketball skills. What what does that mean to you? It means a lot. Um, that's the adversity part. Um, sometimes you got to just let the things go in the past and continue to move forward. Me being a leader of the team, guys are going to follow me. So I got to be at a show when we take an L or we don't play as the best that we can or we didn't do, do the things that we should. It's important that we regroup, get back to the drawing board, learn from the thing, learn from our mistakes, own it, hold each other accountable, but also move forward. It's in the past, it's in the past, wins or losses. We've got to continue to move forward, bounce back to the next game and try our best to win the next game and improve on those things that we watched on film. Thanks, X. And we are back on the Michigan Basketball Insider. I know it's a little bit different that we have uh, two interviews, but I thought it was really important, Tim, to, to seize upon uh, an extra conversation that you guys had about leadership because I really feel like, you know, leadership is, is really, I think, more pronounced uh, more important, uh, more impactful in times of adversity. And this is not, again, it's not a, an abnormal, a dire circumstance uh, to drop a couple of games. Uh, but this is this is one of those things that leaders can prevent, help prevent a couple of games from becoming four, five, or six. 
Xavier Simpson hates to lose, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, he, 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 I, I can see him storming around the practice court. If somebody doesn't get great effort, give great effort, he's going to get in their face. Um, he's, he's a grumpy guy when they lose. And, and, and I think that's going to really help them as they have five of the next six games on their court in their building. And, and I, and I do believe this is the defining period of their season. Um, they've competed hard and they've had some, some really good wins, but right now they have to establish that this is our building and, and nobody is going to, to beat us. And I, if they can, if they can win five of their next six, um, that, that would really go a long way in solidifying a great season and an NCAA bid four of six would be acceptable and get them to 500 in the big 10. But, but, but this is a big opportunity. Absolutely, it is. Uh, Tim, we'll come back around to talking uh, about Michigan leading into the the Penn State matchup. Some of these uh, great role performances, for instance, that we saw against Iowa. But now it's time uh, to get into an interview. I'm excited about all your interviews, but this one uh, in particular, one of the voices of college basketball uh, on the court, one of the voices in college basketball when it comes to change and reform off the court. A, a former Dukey, which which normally kind of makes me look with a jaw to say anytime you throw Duke in there, but this this is one of the exceptions for me. Jay Billis, who is one of the foremost voices in the world of college basketball, uh, and you got a chance to sit down and speak with him this week. I enjoyed it a, a great deal, and you know, I consider Jay a friend. I think he's the most respected voice in college basketball. Uh, very strong opinions and, and clear analysis. I think he's the best. And uh, when when you think about uh, all of the things he does, he is a, a former pro ball player, um, all conference at Duke. He's an actor, a practicing attorney, a really strong advocate for player rights. And and when I watch college basketball, I I watch it a little bit different than other people because I'm an analyst. I, I like to take notes on things that are unique. And 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 Jay is the one that I learned the most from. So it was a it was a really, really good time to catch up and ask him some questions uh, that, that I've always wanted to ask him. All right. Here is Tim McCormick with ESPN basketball analyst Jay Billis. The Michigan Basketball Insider podcast is pleased to bring to you the most well-respected voice in all of college basketball. ESPN's Jay Billis. Jay, thanks so much for joining me. Tim, how you doing, my friend? Good to be with you. Yeah, so we're at the, uh, the halfway point of the college basketball season. What are your thoughts on what makes this season so unique and special? It's as, uh, I, I don't know if wide open, Tim, is the right word for it. Uh, we don't have any dominant teams. and That doesn't mean we don't have talented players. They're, they're good players across the board. But we don't have the overwhelming talent that we've had in past years. And the, the big shots that we've come to expect to sort of dominate the landscape uh, are not capable of doing that. I think the best teams this year are, are going to be the ones that are most consistent, not the most dominant. We're not going to have a dominant team, I don't believe. Uh, and I think the top five is going to be made up of teams that, that simply have not lost lately. It's not going to be a group of teams that have somehow separated from the pack and are untouchable. And we've always had upsets in the past, but, uh, but this year it goes beyond that. I mean, you see it, you see it up close just in, in the Big Ten. 
where I mean, it takes a it takes an act of Congress to win a road game at the Big Ten, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure that's uh, that's been the case in past years where it's been sort of. Uh, and I've, I've never, never really used the word parody because I don't think it's existed, but we've got, we're closer to that now this year, uh, than I can ever remember. One of those teams is Michigan. We're in year one of the Joan Howard era and they're top 20. What, what has impressed you about the start of Joan's career as a coach? Just that that's a very together group and, uh, and they, they play hard. They play hard together. Uh, they run good. They run good stuff. Um, obviously not having Isaiah livers out there is a, is a really difficult thing, but they, they've handled that pretty well. And some other guys have come in and played well and, and they have great point guard play. I mean, to have a, a sort of a, a big guy like John Teske and then have a, who I consider to be a great college point guard, Xavier Simpson, uh, they're, they're legit. They're, you know, I, I think without livers in there, uh, it knocks them back and, and they've proven to be, um, uh, you know, sort of less than they were when they they won the the battle for Atlantis. That was the that was probably as as good as it gets for 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 Michigan, and and they could build on that. But without Livers in there, you take any star off off any team, and, and they're gonna they're gonna take a step back. You mentioned John Teske and an an interesting development out of Ann Arbor. Uh, in five Big Ten games, opposing centers averaging thirty points and twelve rebounds. Uh, they're very much. Very much uh, analytics-driven. Juwan learned that with the Miami Heat. Um, they're not giving up threes, but they're not helping in the post. Is it sustainable to to not look at zone, look at a double team for Michigan? Well, it depends on on where the production is coming from. So if you're giving up 30 inside and doing it consistently because of schemes, uh, and and that's all you're giving up, and you're not giving up threes, you're not fouling, put them on the free throw line, and not giving up easy baskets in transition. Yeah, it is sustainable. But if you're giving up points in other areas, then then I think you know obviously it needs to be addressed. Uh, one there, there's one thing though, Tim, like the quality of big guy in the Big Ten this year is really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was actually looking at some numbers over the last few days of of uh, you know big guys that are averaging double doubles and uh, and I think three of them are in uh, in the big uh, big 10 you know with Daniel Turo of Minnesota and Luca Garza and uh, Xavier Tillman and uh, you know and then we've already mentioned John Teske. there are a group of big guys in that league that are really accomplished and really good but to your point about analytics you know it's it's funny analytics have, have taken over just about every sport and uh, and in basketball I know when you and I played back when in the short shorts era when black and white photographs and all that stuff. Um, you know, we didn't have the three point shot when we were in college and that's changed everything now. And now the, the most high value shot, it was when we played, but free throws, the most high value. And then it's, uh, it's shots at the rim. Uh, and then, uh, and then open threes. Uh, and so that's what, that's what all these teams are gearing up for. And in some instances, it's working really well. Uh, in others, um, maybe not as much, but, but that may be, a function of talent more so than than scheme. Yeah, it'll be an interesting scenario to watch play out. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to ask you about Michigan is, Juwan has a top five recruiting class that surprised a lot of people. Is this the new normal? And w- and when you look at the the potential of competing for one and duns with Duke and Kansas and Carolina and Kentucky, um, will Michigan be in that category as a national recruiter moving forward? Do you believe? I do believe that, and I believe Michigan can be. It has been in the past, and I think uh, I think will be in the future. It's a great brand. I think the the tricky part, the most difficult part for any coach, whether it's Jawan Howard or 
John Calipari, Mike Krzyzewski, Tom Izzo, you name it, is how to fashion together a roster that uh, it is really difficult to deal with uh, with players that are going to be gone uh, in a year and to have like three, four of them. Uh, and, and sometimes the difficulty comes, what if they stay? It's not just if they go, it's if they stay because you've recruited guys behind them. So there, there are all kinds of difficulties that come with that. Uh, and obviously it's an energy challenge to be able to coach those guys and have to reteach everything every single year. But having a balance for most programs seems to be the best way to do it. It's just hard when you've got top players that want to come to Michigan. It's hard to say, well, well, look, we've already got our one and done candidates. We can't take any more. That, that's a really difficult thing to do. Uh, so I don't, and, and, and then you have the transfer issue too, Tim, that, that has, uh, has really changed over the past probably five years where uh, more and more players, if, uh, if things aren't going their way or they see something different, um, they're, they're looking to move on. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, it may be a good thing, but it's certainly a different thing for coaches. And, and their biggest challenge now, uh, in addition to recruiting, is keeping their roster together from year to year. You know, they have to, I heard a coach the other day say, uh, what he does is not necessarily recruit his players after the season's over. They're recruiting their players all year long mm-hmm. and letting letting them know that hey, you're a neat, you, you, this is the plan for you. And even though you're not playing as much as you expect right now, you're a valuable piece. Here's where this is headed. All that stuff. They have to recruit all the time, and that's certainly a difference from from when we played. Yeah, Jay, your your, your answer brings up uh, something I find interesting. You talked about the one and done. You talked about transfers. Uh, when we look into the future of college basketball, the G League is possibly going to be unionized. Um, that means increased salaries, probably over $100,000. More players may bypass college. What does the NCAA basketball landscape look like in 10 years? That's a great question. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that. I will tell you that that if I were sort of in the NCAA structure, if I were an administrator, one of the questions I would be asking is, so one piece is you have the game itself and the, the product of the game, uh, almost like you have the NBA product versus the college product. The other is is the state admission. And, you know, to me, uh, putting up barriers and a stop sign to, to players that are interested in being professionals, which we seem to be doing, uh, is not the right thing for education. That if we really believe that education is so important for a young person, uh, in our society, that we should be welcoming uh, players to college, irrespective of how long they may stay. Mm-hmm. Because once they're on campus, they're more likely to come back. And, you know, we don't tell these stories because they're not as interesting to people, but so many players that leave early wind up coming back. And uh, they come back, they continue to pursue their educations, and, and they're having a connection with the universities are really valuable. It's a wonderful thing. And so I, I don't think sort of having a stigma or some scarlet letter on some some player that they want to be a pro uh, is is something that the NCAA wants to be doing. I think we want to welcome them to college, and then if they leave early, great. Let's let's figure out a way to keep them keep them in the fold. And if they can continue their educations while they're playing pro ball, that's that's great. If they can come back and finish, that's great. Whatever it takes, uh, because if the mission really is education, I can't imagine putting up a stop sign to any young person in our country and saying, nope, if you're not going to be Shane Battier or, or Bill Bradley, we're not interested. Uh, because we seem to be sending that message right now. But the, the larger point of your question is I, I don't think that the pro game is always going to be a competitive element uh, to college basketball. Um, I think college has handled it relatively well, but, but haven't had to make tough decisions. I think the tough decisions we're going to have to make going forward is – 
we're going to have to allow the players to make money. And if they if they're not allowed to make money, we're going to see more of them leave. And then at some point, college basketball uh, is is going to look a lot like college baseball, except we're going to have a, a tournament that people gamble on, and they'll be really interested in the tournament, and that'll be about all they're interested in. Well said, well said for sure. Uh, a couple fast break questions. Uh, best college basketball player you have covered as an analyst? The best college basketball player I've covered. Wow. Um, I wouldn't even know where to go on that one. The best I've ever covered. Um, I'm going to be silent you, to you answer. You stumped, you stumped <laughs> me on that one. Okay. Um, who would be the best? Uh, best shooter was J.J. Redick. Um, the best I've ever covered. God, I don't know. I could pick one out, Tim. Okay. That, yeah, that would. This would be a long period of silence. I'll have yeah. to think about that. I'll call. <laughs> I'll text you after I come up with it. Might be. It might be a couple hours. Yeah. In the interest of good podcasting, we'll move on. Then we don't want <laughs> silence. Um, you could play for any coach in college basketball, not counting Coach K. Who do you choose? I would. I would like to play for uh, Roy Williams because I would love to be sort of in on the, in, in, every day on the Carolina system. I see a lot of their practices. And the other guy would be Izzo uh, because I was never as good of a rebounder as I felt like I should have been. And if he couldn't get more out of me, then I don't know who could have. I would have loved to have had him yell at me to get more rebounds. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to pick the number ten. Uh, Big Ten teams in the NCAA tournament. Is that high or low this year? Oh, it's going to be high. Uh, the Big Ten has, as you, you see daily, uh, it's the best league top to bottom. Uh, now the Big East may be able to argue it's the most competitive league. I would, I would quarrel with that. But like they have, they have maybe, a, a, a the bottom team is a better shot to beat the top team a little more often in that league. But that's not the measure to me. I think the Big Ten's the best league. And, uh, and it's proving it. Like if you don't, now the pressure to win a home game is ridiculous because winning on the road has become so hard in that league because mm -hmm. it's so good. Mm -hmm. Uh, pick two Big Ten teams that you think will play in the Elite Eight. Uh, two Big Ten teams in the Elite Eight. I would say, uh, I like, I like Michigan State to do that. And I will say, Michigan State and Ohio State, even though they've been struggling of late. I think Ohio State's still a pretty good team. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, who's the most famous name in your cell phone? The most famous name in my cell phone? Um, <laughs> probably right now, Walker Bueller, a pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers. <laughs> it's not the one I expected, but that's good. That's good that works. Should I have said Coach K? Yeah, I, I, I suppose he's more famous to me, but you know, it's your yeah, choice. He's, he's more famous, yeah. 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 I, don't uh, know. I was probably thinking he's, he's not as famous to me because I've known him for, for longer. But, that, yeah, it would be Coach K. Yeah. Uh, when, when you look at Zion returning soon, um, which scenario is more likely, that he's a good NBA player, a five-time or more All-Star, or a Hall of Famer? Basically, is he good, great, or historic? Well, I think the, the, the easiest answer is to say he's a, he's like a five time all star, um, because that's the middle ground. Uh, I do think he's a historic talent. We've never seen anything. I've, I've never seen anything like him in college. Um, I don't think he's the best player I've ever seen in college, but, um, but he's, nobody's been like him, uh, to have that sort of size and explosiveness. Um, it has been a little bit interesting to hear people talk about his injuries as being this, you know, this thing that everybody could see in advance and how, you know, you shouldn't have taken him, that kind of thing. I don't see that. I think he'll come back and be 
just fine. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think I think all these medical professionals, I'd leave that to a medical professional. Because uh, he wasn't hurt all the time in high school or all the time in college. He was hurt once in college when his shoe blew out. And when he came back, uh, he was ridiculously good when he came back. It was absurd, uh, you know, how good. So um, I think he'll be fine. He just needs to get out there. And uh, and I'm glad to see he's going to be coming back. I think they said January 22nd because the idea of players sitting out now uh, because they've been injured for a little while, it's just some, somehow that's foreign to me. I don't, I don't care about I'm with you on that. I just have two more questions. I know you're getting ready for a game tonight. Um, which is your 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 most valued lesson that you learned from Coach K? I think uh, the idea of, of next play. He used to say next play all the time. That that when something happens, you have to move on from it. And even though it didn't seem like you know when we were in film sessions, next play did you know he 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 harped on things a lot in film. But when we were playing, he wanted us to move on right away positive or negative and I think in my daily life that helps me a lot because uh, you know things happen and you, you may get down about something or maybe you get maybe something good happens and you dwell on it for too long and you don't move on uh, so that I, I say next play to myself a lot to sort of move on to the next thing good I like that and the final question uh, you and I met in 1987 in Houston I'm not sure if you remember that or not um, you had really long hair down the middle of your back, and you were an actor in a movie called I Came in Peace. I don't think a lot of people know that. Can you share um, a little bit about your acting career? Yeah, well, it wasn't much of a career, but when I was in, when I graduated college, you and I were about the same age. I think you're a year ahead of me in school. And when I graduated, I played pro ball in Europe. And when I would come home during the summers, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I had a friend who said, Hey, there's a, uh, there's a commercial being shot, uh, and they're looking for, for six, eight, you know, guys that are about six, eight to be basketball players in this commercial. Are you interested in doing that? And I thought, yeah, that'd be great. And I, like an idiot, thought that that meant, okay, I'm going to be in the commercial. And he was really asking me, Hey, there's an audition. And I went down to this audition and there were 60 guys look just like me. And I thought, there's no shot of this. This is ridiculous. I can't believe I did this. Well, I wound up getting the commercial. It was a, it was for Minolta cameras and it played for like three or four years. And they call it mailbox money. You get residuals from those. And I got residuals for those for I don't know how many years. And, and so one of the camera guys on the shoot for the commercial uh, was, a, was a basketball fan. So he had seen me play. And he said, uh, hey, who's your agent? And I told him who my basketball agent was. And he says, well, I've never heard of that guy. And uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> said, uh, he said, hey, man, you need to, you need to get an agent and get into this because you can make a lot of money in commercials. And so I, I did. I got into the Screen Actors Guild. I got an agent, and I started getting more commercials. And uh, my agent said, hey, have you ever thought about acting? And I said, well, no. And he sent me on. He said, go on this read. See if you like it. If you like reading for the part, then we'll, we'll send you on some others. We'll see how it goes. And I went and read for a part as an alien cop in a, in a, a Dolph Lundgren film, and I got the part. And that's where it came from. I, when you and I met, I was, uh, I was an alien cop running around shooting up half of Houston, chasing an alien drug dealer in this movie. It was called Dark Angel, but they changed the name of it to I Come in Peace because there was a movie called Dark Man coming out at the same time. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of how it, how it went. And uh, after that, I got a coaching job, and, and so I, I sort of stepped away from it. But my, uh, my Hollywood career was, uh, was an alien cop uh, who died in the back of a police car in Houston in, uh, in I Come in Peace with, uh, with Dolph Lundgren. 
All of our listeners, get out there and check out I Came in Peace. We'll um, we'll get some residual checks to Jay Billis. Jay, uh, you're the best analyst out there. You're a former player. You're a practicing attorney and a probably a longstanding frustrated actor. Uh, you're my favorite also, and I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the Michigan Basketball Insider Podcast. We're back here on the Michigan Basketball Insider, Sam Webb, with uh, Tim McCormick. And Tim, as I you hear me say often, a broken record, another great sit-down. What are your biggest takeaways from your time with Jay? Well, I asked Jay a question regarding the best player he has broadcast, and I was surprised it stumped him. He could not give me an answer. But only temporarily, because about 10 minutes after the interview, I received a text, and he identified the best players that he's ever broadcast. First was Tim Duncan. Second, Kevin Durant. And, mm. and I, I agree with both of those. It would be hard to keep them off any list of best players um, you know, in, the, in the last 30 years or so. Yeah, man. It, <laughs> you're absolutely right. He has seen a ton of great players in his time as a, uh, as a broadcaster. So another outstanding chat. A uh, real treat to hear you sit down and talk to one of the best in college basketball, rolling back over to Michigan, and when I say roll, no, no pun intended. The role players for for Michigan. There was a point, as we mentioned in the first part of the podcast in Iowa, in the Iowa game, where Xavier Simpson goes out, and it's like, oh man, this is this game is going to get away from them. Uh, and anything but, uh, you know, Tim, it was one of those things where a guy who we've talked about. Really being, uh, you know, really being a guy who epitomizes. <laughs> you you talk about a shooting slump, man. Eli Brooks has been had been in a massive shooting slump, and really he burst out of it in this game. Franz Wagner, who seems to be finding his groove, he seems like we're finding some more consistency from him. And then Dave DeJulius, maybe the the most consistent when it comes to bringing some offensive punch from that role player. That role player group, uh, he again gave Michigan a nice uh, lift off the bench. They got some positive contributions from all three of those guys in, in the Iowa loss. In a difficult environment, too. Uh, Iowa gets loud. Their fans do a really good job. And and I, over the years, I, I think that if um, if someone was to say, which team in the Big Ten is so much better at home than they are on the road, I think it's Iowa. I'm not impressed with Iowa on the road. And, and, and it's been like that under Fran McCaffrey the whole time. And the reason is, is because they play, they play a perimeter style um, for the most part. They, and they really rely on threes. They're an offensive team. It's not great on defense. And, and they play a lot like Michigan. So um, it, was, it, was a, it was a great thing to see the response from the support guys. And you had referenced Brooks. He had missed, I believe it was 15 of his last 16 threes. And it was a great sign to see him shoot so well. He appears to be a streak guy, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and we probably have to live with that. Um, you were the first one to really point out to me that he has a deficiency off the dribble. And, and, and I, I, um, I completely concur. Uh, and I would imagine that as the season's going on, Michigan's coaching staff has done a really good job with him of, of 
having him focus on the things he's good at, you know, quick release jump shots. And, and, and when he's on, you tell him to search, search for shots. You've got the greenest of green lights. And then to Julius, his numbers were, were just fearless. 10 points, four rebounds, four assists. And he didn't even play 20 minutes. I think he deserved some more. And then Franz is kind of easing into um, a real consistency. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were, there were a couple of his buckets that he's had um, that you think, wow, that was just a defensive mistake. You know, we, we probably can't count on that in the future, but he does it every game. He's a really good cutter. And just like some people can knock down shots, some guys are really good passers. That's a skill that's, that's innate. And, and I think it comes from all of the, you know, the, the special coaching sessions that German players have, you know, they, they kind of go to school and learn basketball fundamentals. And that really seems to help him. And, and so you add Isaiah livers and, and that's a really good lineup. Think about this, Sam Brooks, the Julius and Wagner combined for 53 in a really hard environment. That's darn good. Yeah. I mean, how many guys, and I, I'm referenced this play earlier. It was, it, it was a, in the first half and you, you get, you get, John Teske with the ball in the post and and there are, there's a I, I think a tendency for a lot of guys to to just stand around uh, when it's not designed action going to the run but here it is great recognition to your point about fundamentals I mean you see a guy uh, in the post you see your big man in the post commanding some extra attention sure it could be it could create a look and opportunity uh, for you on the outside, but especially if you're opposite, hard for him to get the ball to you. But if you get a hard basket cut uh, and, and that guy can see you and John Teske is, is really great at, at identifying cutters, uh, it can create an opportunity. And that was just a, a real IQ play for me when it came to, to Franz Wagner. But even even more visible to me, and, and tell me if you noticed this, Tim. I mean, he's the guy that, that after after Xavier Simpson, kind of the, the the vocal and maybe emotional sort of uh you know kind of rallying cry he kind of gives the team some of that some of that fiery passion that that reaction some of that some of that mo wagner a, a little if you will to the team and i know he's young i know it's still uh you know we're about halfway getting to the halfway point of the season but man i'm already starting to notice that with with franz wagner as being one of the things in addition to uh, his scoring that's becoming a consistent part of this team. <laughs> Telling the crowd, um, everybody be quiet, <laughs> sit down. <laughs> I got to know um, Mo and Franz's mom at the Top 100 camp. She's a really good lady, and she's a little feisty too. I can I can see where they both get it. But that's an important skill, and it, it's kind of fun to play with somebody that's a little bit fearless, and he's getting better and better. And, and, and his future is bright. Um, one other thing that before we get into, um, you know, Penn State and other topics, uh, back to the free throws, I was looking at a note here. And the first meeting where Michigan beat Iowa at home, um, Luke Garza in that game, once again, shot 13 free throws. And, and so I was just curious, do you think Michigan – or Iowa took more free throws in the first meeting because Iowa is a more physical team. What, what, what I mean, would you guess? On after, that? I would I would guess Iowa took the most. That that would be my guess. Again, I don't have the stats in front of me, so I can't say for sure. But I would guess Iowa. 
Yeah, so nobody was complaining about this the first meeting, but Michigan was 29 for 34 from the line. Iowa only took 24 free throws. Mm. And and so, you know, when when you go on the road and there's a disparity, everybody's upset and a little bit angry. But the truth is that road teams shoot not they, they, they don't shoot as many free throws as their opponents. So that's just it's part of the reality. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, great, great stuff. As always, Tim, you you segued into the next opponent for Michigan, the Penn State Nittany Lions. And this is a Penn State team that when we get to what our, you know, our view, what the Big Ten is typically, Penn State is one of the teams that is typically toward the bottom. Uh, Tim, this year, Penn State right now, 13-5 and five overall, 3-4 and four in conference, coming off a victory over Ohio State. This is not... Your average, this is not your mama's Penn State Nittany Lion team. A no. much better Penn State team uh, than I think we are accustomed to seeing in Lamar Stevens, you know, a guy that is one of the best players in this conference. They beat Ohio State by 24. That 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 was really impressive to me. And I think that Penn State is a very good team. I think they'll play in the NCAA tournament. And, and this is not a guaranteed victory, which you would have thought in the past. Uh, I think that the Penn State-Michigan game will be very similar to Purdue. And, and if you look at their record, and if you haven't watched them play, they've beaten Georgetown. They beat Syracuse by 21. They beat Alabama, Maryland, Iowa. And then Saturday, they blew out Ohio State. And they dropped 90 points on them. Um, they're led by Lamar Stevens. Yeah, I don't think his numbers are as good as they've been in the past. He's an all Big Ten player, definitely on the, the NBA radar as that prototypical forward, like 6'8", 220 pounds. And, and the reason that his scoring is down, he's getting more help. They've got four guys averaging double figures. Um, I don't really trust Lamar Stevens as a three-point shooter. Absolutely that's probably, right. Yeah, I'm yeah, right that, there with that, you. Yeah, that's probably the reason – that he he tested the draft and came back, but but their roster has a lot more depth, and more talent. They're better athletes, and and I I think that their strength is on the defensive end. They they generate steals, um, they force turnovers, but the 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 one thing that'll be interesting for me is this is the first game in a while that John Teske is is not going to have to go against an elite score. Um, Mike Watkins lost his starting job. He's coming off the bench. Um, but 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 I I just kind of wonder, as uh, Big Ten centers, they know who does what against what teams. And, and I just wonder if Mike Watkins is saying, I've been struggling a little bit, but I'm going against Michigan, and I'm going to get me 20 points. And, <laughs> and so that'll be interesting to see if, if Patrick Chambers has seen something that he thinks he can take advantage of with Watkins. Or if Teske gets to, to you know have a sigh of relief and say, "Thank God I don't have to you know go against a, a 260-pound scoring machine like he has the last five games." Well, uh, this is one of those one of those uh, matchups, and you I think highlighted a very important point when recognizing uh, and highlighting Lamar Stevens' versatility. I think there's a tendency, and I'm guilty of this as well, to give him more credit than he's due as a three-point shooter. Earlier in his career, first couple of years, 
in his career. He shot over 30% from beyond the arc. It's 34.4% as a freshman, uh, 31.9% as a sophomore. But Mm. these last two seasons, Tim, he's been below 30%. Last year, he was 22% from three. This year, he's a shade over 25% from three. Can you stay in front of him? Is going to be the question for, for Michigan's front court guys because he wants to get to the rim. Can you keep him off the offensive glass? He is active uh, in the paint area despite being uh, smaller and central. He can hit a mid range jumper, but three point range, I, I mean, nope. man, that he does that is not his game. You know, as dialed into the scout as Michigan is, uh, that that will be that will be something that they concede if he wants to take those. But can you stay in front of him? And that is a that's an issue seemingly uh, at times for Michigan staying in front of guys that can put it on the deck. Uh, Michigan's uh, front court will be put to the test when it comes to Lamar Stevens on that front. I agree with you. And what what I've seen is when Lamar Stevens was a freshman and a sophomore, he he was sort of an unknown quantity, and and there were other players that were at the top of the scouting report. So he found himself wide open and he had a better caliber of shots as a featured weapon in the big 10. The scouting reports are so deep and they know exactly where you like to shoot and what, what sets generate three looks for you. And, and so I think that's the biggest issue, but in this game, I I'm really hopeful that we'll see livers. You know, the fact that he dressed against Iowa was a really good sign. Um, he may still be a couple games away, but but Michigan must be angry and hungry. And, and if, if they do, I don't see this as a blowout. Um, Penn State is too good defensively to let that happen. I think just like that, that, that Purdue win, um, it's going to be close. And I would guess that, that Michigan will win by five at Chrysler. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would be a much you got to protect your home floor. You got Tim is one of those, as we said, it's always important to get those home victories. But this year, because the the road victories are even harder to come by, you drop games at home uh, and and it's all the more impactful to the to the bottom line. Got to get a word from you uh, really quickly. Michigan, as you said, going to have another home matchup, uh, a rematch this time with the fighting Illini. And we kind of saw what I feel like, at least from the recognition from Michigan fans' uh, standpoint, we saw the the a breakout performance of sorts from Kofi Coburn because he was able to uh, to to go out there on his home floor and uh, really be super effective against Michigan. You know that John Teske. You, you talk about the you know how he's going to look around and say, "Hey, I don't have a a a you know a prime time guy to go against against Penn State." I got to believe a competitor is going to look forward to the opportunity to see a guy like Coburn again. That'll be a lot of fun. And I, I go back, I think it was Maverick Morgan that they called Michigan white collar. Yeah, he um, did. And, That's and, right. And, and that, that really seemed to be the impetus to, to Michigan playing a more aggressive style of defense. Um, I, I know it was, it was, it was an eye opening loss to me at how, physical and tough Illinois was and and we shouldn't be surprised to see Illinois in second place with Rutgers well we're surprised to see Rutgers there right but but (laughs) Illinois is really a good team and and after that game I think you and I both agreed 
that Illinois has staying power because they're they're tough. And Desumnu is is a, an offensive creator, and Trent Frazier can can be an elite playmaker. I think that Illinois is really good. And at the end of the season, if you go through the 14 Big Ten teams, I've thought from the very start that they will be named as the biggest surprise of the conference season. Absolutely. I agree with you, Tim. A lot to talk about in next week's podcast. That's it for us this week, Tim. Another great one in the books. Thanks a lot, Sam. Have a great week. And um, no more football. Well, it's one game, but you know we can we can really dial in to the college basketball landscape. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Michigan Basketball Insider.